It is a painful thing to look upon your own trouble and know that you yourself and no one else has made you embrace the void. If anyone was ever going to make it back from the void, I suppose it was going to be you. Oh, well, you know, one man's void is another man's piece of cake. What about the reality we left behind? What about the reality where Hitler cured cancer, Morty? The answer is don't think about it. People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like they're people. Welcome, friends, to episode 219 of Embrace the Void, where we're continuing to bring shame on our houses. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we are discussing the under-theorized topic of internet shaming. So, let's make with the judging. Life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... something. My returning guest this week is Krista Thomason. Krista is an associate professor of philosophy at Swarthmore College and the Philip Quinn Fellow at the National Humanities Center. She's the author of Naked, the Dark Side of Shame and Moral Life, and a chapter in the Oxford Handbook of Digital Ethics on, on online shaming, which is what we're going to be discussing here today. Krista, would you like to say hi to The Void? Hi, The Void. How are you? Good. It's so great to have you back. I really appreciate you coming back on. Yeah, absolutely. It's great to be here. We had a really fun chat. Uh, I think it was 138 for folks who definitely should go back and give it a listen on your book, Naked, The Dark Side of Shame and Moral Life, which was very interesting. And so we're going to I'll try to sort of build off of that a little bit here, but to maybe help folks you know, who might need a bit of a refresher, you, I think, identify as a negative emotions apologist, I think would be the way to sort of describe your thesis, especially mm-hmm. with regard to shame in that book. Do you want to sort of explain a little bit why you take that position and what that means for you? Yeah, yeah. So I definitely am a negative emotions apologist. So I think that negative emotions get a bad rap and they are the sorts of things that I think people are very suspicious of. I think moral philosophers are suspicious of them. But I think the average person has this kind of standing uh, thought that we need to do something with our negative emotions or get rid of them or get over them or feel them less to some extent. And we have to do that in order to be flourishing people, good people, however you want to describe that, live a better life. And Mm -hmm. uh, that's a thesis that I want to deny. So I don't think that that's true. I think negative emotions are just as much a part of a a decent life as as any of the positive ones. And so I'm working on that project now in a a kind of a more general way and like a public facing way. So the the second book, the book that I'm working on now is, is going to be, you know, defending that thesis and uh, in more detail, but it mm-hmm. comes out of the work that I did in in the first book, and so shame mm-hmm. was kind of my test subject, I guess, if you want to call it that, to to mm-hmm. sit, figure out if there was a way I could defend the value of shame in uh, in a good life. And yeah, the first book with Oxford is really about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think this is an interesting one because there's sort of there's a lot of I think we talked about this a little bit in the first episode, but like a lot of kind of pop like stoicism and things that are centered around the idea that like we need to train ourselves to not have certain kinds of emotions or or that kind of thing. Can you give like a concrete example of where you feel like shame is a valuable part of a life of flourishing? Yeah, definitely. So I think the best way to get into that is to ask yourself the question. What's wrong with somebody who is shameless? Mm-hmm. What do we not like people? What do we, what is it about people? You know, when we when we call someone shameless, we clearly don't mean that as a compliment. We usually think that's a bad thing. So what is it about that person that we find distasteful that we don't like? And I think for me, the, the answer to that question is the shameless person is impervious to any kind of criticism. The shameless mm-hmm. person is someone who seems not to register at all that other people 
might be making judgments about them, evaluating their actions in certain ways. They seem to either not sort of register that, that even that's even happening or they seem not to care. And mm. that's, I think, so, so if that's right, if that turns out to be right, then we can sort of work backwards and say, well, then what's valuable about shame? Well, what's valuable about shame then is that it, it shows our liability to feelings of shame shows mm -hmm. that we take seriously the idea, you know, that, that other people might judge us and that there's something mm -hmm. that that's a, a, a feature of moral maturity, right? That's to sort of realize that I'm not always the person that I take myself to be, that I can be, you know, deceived about, about who I am, that I can uh, take myself, I, you know, I, we can be pretty hot on ourselves. Mm -hmm. And uh, having a healthy sense of shame is about realizing that, you know, sometimes we're wrong about that. Sometimes we're not as hot as we think. And it's it's good for us to realize that other people are sort of, you know, making judgments about us, essentially. So, yeah, so that's what I think is, that's one of the ways to, to think about the value of shame. Okay, great. So I just want to make sure I want to tease apart the sort of justifications there, because I think there's, mm -hmm. there's potentially two going on there. One is this is a like the ability to feel shame is a key marker for the right kind of character development that we want mm -hmm. to see in people right we want you to be the sort of ethically attuned individual who does have that negative emotion when they realize they've done something wrong mm -hmm. which is in that situation right if we just had that one then like the shame itself is not like hugely valuable except as a sort of indicator right and then there's the version where it's like and we want this because we want to be able to manipulate people's ethical behavior further by impinging upon that feeling of shame in order to sort of alter their behavior. Are you relying on both of those? Do you feel like one is more important to your argument than the other? Or yeah, how do you understand that? That's a good question. Yeah. So I am, I'm definitely of the, the sort of the first, that's my main, my argument is mainly that first piece. The mm -hmm. idea that, you know, a, a liability to feelings of shame is a mark of moral maturity. It's a mark of, you know, moral sensitivity. And so it, if that's right, then we shouldn't take episodes of shame shame to be, you know, something that we should ultimately get over. We should actually think of those things as fine. Now, mm -hmm. it is key. So, so I keep using the term liability and there's a reason for that. It doesn't, just because you think a liability to shame is a good thing, right? What we would call mm -hmm. a sense of shame. Mm -hmm. Just because you think that's true, it doesn't thereby deem every single episode of the emotion as therefore a valuable emotion. Right. Mm -hmm. So there you might say you might say there's a difference between having a sense of shame and then feeling each individual episode of shame. Now, I think those things can't be completely divorced. So having a sense of shame means you're liable to the, to actually feel episodes of the emotion and you can't sort of like get rid of that part. Right. Um, but it doesn't thereby mean that every single time I feel shame, it's an awesome thing. Mm -hmm. It just means right. I'm better off with it than without it. Right. So there's no way to like hardwire the system or like, you know, short circuit the system where we have the kind of character that is moral, but we don't ever actually end up feeling the experience of shame. Like exactly. sometimes it's it's necessary in that kind exactly. of way. Yeah. Right. And I think that makes sense. And I even like I also am not totally unsympathetic to the idea that on a societal or communal level, some kinds of shaming are a good way to tweak people's behavior a little bit too, right? I, I think I think you're probably I'm more sympathetic to the first clause in the way that you are, the first version. Um, but I don't I don't think we should totally discount the second version either. Do you sort of think that's true in certain circumstances at least? Yeah. So here's where I think we probably differ on that. So mm -hmm. I I don't think of shame as a as a feeling that you can prescribe to people. So unlike, for example, guilt, maybe, where you say like, hey, man, you should kind of feel guilty about that, I think, or, or you should at least evaluate your actions in terms that would uh, open yourself up to the possibility of guilt. So I think, I think we can ask people to think of themselves in ways that might bring about shame, right? So feelings mm -hmm. of shame. So here's one, mm -hmm. here's an example of that. So let's suppose I have a, a colleague who's just like wildly arrogant for example. Not that you would ever mm -hmm. meet anybody like that in philosophy, right? No, of course no, not. I don't, present company excluded, obviously. <laughs> so, so suppose you meet somebody who's really arrogant and they're, they're arrogant in such a way that they sort of demand a kind of deference from you 
um, that, that they frankly don't deserve, right? They just, they, they think that you should just sort of worship of their feet or whatever and think of themselves as just whatever, you know, the bee's knees or something like that. I think you, you are well within your rights as a, as a person who is, you know, has self-respect to in, invite them to have a realization about their own arrogance, right? And <laughs> in doing so, <laughs> they might feel shame about that, right? They could feel mm -hmm. a lot of things about that, but they might feel shame about it, right? It's, it's presenting somebody with a different view of themselves than the one they have. And so mm -hmm. when you do that, I think you, you open people up to the possibility that they'll feel shame when they sort of look at how they've been seeing themselves and then they look at how you see them and there's mm -hmm. this mismatch between those two things. So uh -huh. when that kind of thing occurs, I think shame usually happens when we have that sort of experience. Um, I like to think of that as different than mm -hmm. a, a practice of communal shaming. Like I think of uh -huh. the sh of shaming practices, things like shaming punishments, things like online shaming, for example. I think of those practices as actually different from that interpersonal interaction. Now. I can totally understand why people would disagree with me about that, but I want to sort of make a distinction between the interpersonal and this uh -huh. kind of communal practice. Yeah, I think there's I think there's a distinction to be made there, and I think I am more sympathetic to the one than the other. I was I was probably lumping them together there a little bit, but like so, for example, I can see a difference between that and you know the Game of Thrones marching you through right. the streets <laughs> shouting shame at you, which I think we made right, right. talked about last episode, right? But okay, so this brings us I think to around to I think this is a good way to set up this discussion of the online shaming side of things because you know if if I just took a cursory look at your work or something, I might assume right that you would be pro online shaming because you are pro-shame right. um, but I think your your sort of argument is a lot more nuanced than that how so how do you so what is your take on online shaming would you say roughly in this chapter yeah so so uh in the chapter I actually want to be as sympathetic as I can to kind of both both sides of the argument so since it's okay. for the Oxford handbook the internet it... loves both siderism so that's great <laughs> clearly yeah so uh, yeah, so so you know, and since it's a it's a chapter for a handbook, you want to try to like lay out the landscape for people and sure. give them a real mm -hmm. sense of where the arguments are. So um, so I am not I am not pro shaming practice by any stretch of the imagination. So so I define shaming as the marshalling of negative communal attention to someone. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you're you are holding that person's behavior up. You are inviting other people to sort of scrutinize and look at that behavior, and you're inviting people to to direct their negative attention toward that person because mm -hmm. of what they've done. So so for mm -hmm. me, shaming practices require some kind of audience that doesn't necessarily need to be a huge audience. It can be a huge audience. It doesn't necessarily be, have to be a really big public forum, but it does require somebody to do the looking at somebody mm -hmm. else. Um, mm -hmm. And so that, uh, in the chapter, I, I try to go through, I think, you know, what are some of the arguments in favor of that practice? And ultimately, I think they don't work. Um, that, mm -hmm. that it's, it, the tagline might be something like, um, this is not a respectful way to engage with our fellow moral community members um, mm -hmm. even when they do something wrong even when we feel like they deserve it shaming is not a way to engage in moral criticism and moral disagreement mm -hmm. yeah so let's talk about that part of the argument yeah. first so you, you sort of effectively raise a distinction which i think is a fair distinction between you know is something effective versus whether it's ethically justified right right we might recognize uh, you know that like um, killing innocence or something uh, reduces harm or something, but doesn't seem ethically justified, for mm -hmm. example. Um, that being said, I think you also acknowledge correctly that like they are connected to, they're not fully separable mm -hmm. because whether something is ethically justified in particular, I think depends to some extent on whether it's effective, right? Mm -hmm. if, if it turned out that like online shaming was extremely effective at reducing harmful behavior, that would impact our calculus, it seems like, on whether or not it's ethical. So I'm curious, how much do you feel your argument sort of against, insofar as I think you are, you know, lean against, even though you give both sides of the argument, you know, how much does your argument depend on this is bad because it's ineffective? Yeah, that's a good question. So I, I think there are probably parts of my argument that do rely on that. So yeah, so as I say in the chapter, it's not always so easy to to distinguish those two so i want to avoid a kind of strict 
consequentialist style argument about it. But I also recognize that, you know, some of the claims that people make do hinge on this question of whether or not it's effective. So for example, in the latter part of the chapter, I talk about, you know, one of the pro arguments in favor of shaming is this idea that it creates uh, safer communities so that mm-hmm. it, uh, it, it makes the internet or social media platforms, it makes them safer and more comfortable for people who are marginalized if we shame mm-hmm. people who engage in, for example, sexist or racist behavior. Well, so part of my argument about that is that it, it, I think you can ask the question whether or not it really accomplishes that. Does it mm-hmm. actually make the internet a safer place for people? Um, and so the the questions that I raise about that are these questions about whether or not you're actually putting marginalized people in a more precarious position because you are putting them in a position where they don't feel comfortable criticizing um, certain views because if they mm-hmm. do, they'll be labeled as kind of traitors, right? And then it seems to mm-hmm. me like, well, actually what you're doing is putting someone who's marginalized in a worse kind of position. You're actually making them more unsafe by creating a kind of environment that's not tolerant of discussion. Mm-hmm. So so some of that does have to do with the question of effectiveness. That's a question of whether or not, like, are we actually making people safer or not? Is that's, mm-hmm. That is a question about efficacy. Okay, yeah. And I want to dive into the specific sort of concerns that you raise um, a little bit. Let me just clarify one more thing here. Um, I, I think it might be possible, and this would sort of like be a concern in conjunction with the way people talk about how like online is not real life or something like mm-hmm. that. That like they might hear what you're saying as as being like we shouldn't feel shame for what we do online, right? Like, oh, like yeah. just conflating the wording here a little mm-hmm. bit. So I just want to make clear. I understand you as saying we we probably should feel shame for what we do online, just <laughs> right. like we should feel shame for what we do offline, <laughs> right, right? Right. Right. But the online shaming behavior is particularly exactly exactly yeah that's exactly right. Okay, great. So the specific problems you raise in the chapter about this, you've already explained one there, right? The risk of creating safe communities. The other ones you describe are the disproportionality problem, which for anyone familiar with cancer culture, that one's pretty self-explanatory. And then the co-deliberation problem, which is a little bit more sort of an ethically sophisticated uh, kind of problem. Let me just ask broadly, first of all, do you rank these concerns in your mind at all? I didn't. I don't, I don't think I saw in the paper sort of a prioritizing, but I'm curious. Yeah. Do you think that one of them is more important than the other or Mm. something like that when you're Mm -hmm. sort of making your arguments here? Yeah, that's a good question. So so uh, the easy answer is no. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't really think of them as being in any kind of order, although if I were if I were thinking about which ones I think are. the risks are, I would say, deeper might be or more thoroughgoing the risks. I would say the one about co-deliberation is probably the mm-hmm. the more sort of thoroughgoing risk, mainly because it's about sort of the very structure of moral interaction. And so you might mm-hmm. think there's, you might think that's a kind of, you know, there's a framework issue or an underlying kind of bedrock issue there that, uh, that sort of gets to, I think sometimes that, I think it sort of gets to the heart of what we're really concerned about when we have these concerns about online shaming. I think what we're really concerned about is the right way to interact with each other as, as mm-hmm. moral agents who, who do bad stuff sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a really pressing problem, I think. So, so I would think of that one and that might just be, you know, the moral philosopher in me is of course, like sort of concerned with like the deep, <laughs> the sure. deep moral uh, the theoretical questions. Problems, right? So, uh, but no, in my, as I was writing them, I wasn't really thinking of them as ranked in any way. Okay. I was just curious. So, you yeah. know, let's throw it on the, um, the co-deliberation one then, yeah. because I think this one is interesting. Um, I I don't have a very constructivist mindset when it comes to metaethics, but I do, mm-hmm. you know, believe in sort of social cognition as an important part of um, doing the work, as it were. Um, and so I, I, I wanted to sort of press a little bit on this idea that, like, online shaming is incompatible with co-deliberation, right? Mm-hmm. It's sort of, you say it's sort of antithetical to co-deliberation. Um, but you also, I think, acknowledge in there that, like, on some levels, social co-deliberation is going to involve, you know, disagreement that will be perceived as shaming. Like we mm-hmm. as ethicists of anyone probably know best that like it's very hard to tell somebody I disagree with you ethically without them experiencing a- an emotional blowback and feeling like you are trying to shame them. And like and that I think has been ma- mm-hmm. probably made worse by various sort of 
forms of the discourse or something like that. Um, but I guess I, I wonder, yeah. you know, how do we how do we balance having these discussions at all if we are are so worried about sort of, uh, you know, imparting shame onto the people we're disagreeing with? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. So so I don't actually think. Um, let me put this. I was getting ready to say something, but let me put it differently. Part of what it means to engage in co-deliberation well is, I think, to make sure we have a space where people can have those morally painful feelings, including the ones that involve, you know, a, a deep kind of self-scrutiny and a, and a kind of maybe shock or surprise about what we ourselves are and aren't capable of, um, have mm -hmm. a place where we can have those feelings without then believing ourselves to be irredeemable or believing mm -hmm. ourselves to be sort of outside of the pale right and so mm -hmm. um and so part of what i, I think co-deliberation requires is not that we protect people from having those feelings but rather that we we allow for them but we allow for them in a way that doesn't sort of show people that they can't kind of you know remain a part of the community well, that's really interesting because that sort of is like now we're tying together the co-deliberation and the disproportionality problem a little bit, right? Oh, so yeah. Like, I do think those the, are related to some extent. Yeah. Right. So the more like we feel that moral judgments are going to come with disproportionate approbation, mm -hmm. right, the harder it, it becomes to express those moral judgments in a functional kind of way it seems right. like there right. um so i, I want to I get into that further because i think that that really plays on how we as human beings especially with platforms have to act um out there in the world but i just i want to press a little bit more on this co-deliberation issue mm -hmm. because i think some some of my listeners might hear this and hear a little bit of like the kind of classical liberal millsian we have uh, to debate things for all eternity kind of right, thing right 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 like i think you know co-deliberation is good up to a point, right? Mm -hmm. At which point I think we've co-deliberated enough. Um, like, so, you know, take the example of the N-word just to use, you know, a very sort of straightforwardly extreme example, right? It doesn't seem like we still have to co-deliberate about the use of that word. I mean, like, I guess I could complicate that a little bit and say that there are still debates to be had about that word. But like for people like you and I, for example, let's say, I think the debate is relatively settled on whether we should be using that word or not. And I guess I wonder... Do you feel like if we get to a point like that on a moral issue where co-deliberation mm -hmm. is no longer a continuing concern, does that sort of eliminate this argument against online shaming for the use of things like the N-word? That's a great question. So so I should I should probably tell your listeners that I am actually like deeply sympathetic to Mill. <laughs> but no deliberation doesn't come from him. It comes from feminist philosophy. So it comes from right, Margaret right. Walker. Right. They they hear it from the anti-woke though. So you <laughs> right. know. <laughs> right, right. Um yeah, so so let me let me kind of throw this is where I, I this is me talking about kind of where my own thinking is on this topic right now. And I don't want to pretend like this isn't in any way, shape, or form settled. Mm -hmm. um, but here's the concern that I have. I am concerned about people who are the subject of what I'm going to call bad moral epistemic luck. Mm, now you're talking my language. Yeah. So <laughs> and so I'm going to use myself as an example. OK, so so I grew up in the South and I grew up in a place where the Confederate flag was prominently displayed in a bunch of places right and sure. including like on a flagpole <laughs> in somebody's front yard yep. like very For sure and <laughs> and because of where i grew up and because of the kind of school that i went to and a bunch of other reasons um i did not have there there were no forces in my life that pressed against the argument that 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 there was nothing wrong with that flag that that flag was about quote heritage not hate etc that sort of thing right and so this was mm -hmm. my world right so mm -hmm. so i don't want to let myself off the hook you know what i'm an epistemic agent and it was it was on me to try to consider other features of you know other other ways of understanding that symbol and other ways of, and i should say i no longer believe this obviously about the confederate flag but growing up Mm -hmm. um, it was hard for me to see around that argument. So I didn't have anybody who was giving me the other case. I had only one side of the case presented to me at all times, everywhere I went. So it wasn't until I left my town and it wasn't until I left my state, as a matter of fact, that I actually encountered arguments that were presented to me that, that were giving me the other 
option, the other side of that argument. Mm -hmm. So I, I like to think that that problem might be slightly more widespread than people realize that mm -hmm. we are, that many, many, many different people are in that, are in that club or in that category that they've experienced because of their community. And it doesn't have to be just about that issue. It can be about a bunch of different issues that you've, you've grown up in a bit of a bubble or you've existed in a bit of a bubble and you've not actually had the ability to meaningfully debate something in your life because mm -hmm. the world that you were, that you were in just didn't allow for that. Not in any kind of substantive way. So, so if that turned out to be right, if that turns out to be right, and there's actually quite a few people who are in that, um, mm -hmm. who are in that uh, position, it seems to me we've moral co-deliberation then becomes even more important because you've got to be able to welcome people, bring people into a conversation in a way that lets them start to hear those arguments, even if a bunch of other people have decided that those arguments are, are over and done with. There's a mm -hmm. lot of people who haven't heard them, as it turns out, mm -hmm. and who desperately mm -hmm. need to hear them in order for their own moral and epistemic growth. So that's the place where I kind of land on these issues of like what counts as an issue that's not debatable anymore. And, and it's not that I'm unsympathetic to the idea that there are things that seem really super clear, right? Uh, and mm -hmm. that it seems mm -hmm. like, look, I don't, I, you know, it's pretty hard to these days to find somebody who's not heard the case for certain kinds of moral claims. Um, but it's a little bit difficult, I think, to, there, like some of those cases seem really clear, but it seems to me there's a lot more that aren't. So if that turns mm -hmm. out to be right, it seems to me like moral co-deliberation has got to be more expansive in terms mm -hmm. of what mm -hmm. kinds of arguments and debates get heard and what kinds of things get tolerated and which which sorts of things don't. Um, I don't know who coached you to cite luck in your argument, but it was very, it was exactly the right move to, uh, in this particular. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm fully sympathetic to that concern. And it's why, like, I'm not sympathetic to punitive shaming or something like right. that, right? right? Thinking that this should be like, like, I'm only on board for shaming if there's like some valuable product for it or something like that, which may even be a little different from your view by potentially, right? You might have some reasons to value shame, right? In ways that aren't necessarily instrumental. Right. Um, but yeah, no, I, I am I'm definitely sympathetic to this point. And I think it also is why the disproportionality question matters so very, very much. Um, and I want to get there in like two seconds, but let me just ask you just one more concern mm -hmm. on this co-deliberation issue, which is that you know, when I look across our, our social landscape, right, it doesn't feel like co-deliberation is remotely possible, even if we were to, like, remove the shaming aspect, right? It feels yeah. to me that because of sustained political projects, and, and like, I'll, I'll be, you know, fully honest, I'm on the left, and I think largely those sustained political projects were by the right, mostly to sustain various forms of racism and things like that, that, like, we're living in very different realities these days. We're not having co-deliberation. There's no, there's very little crosstalk, it mm -hmm. feels like. Um, and I guess I wonder, you know, even, do, do you feel like if we get rid of the shame element that like that stuff will substantially shift or is it likely that there's still sort of really meaningful like value differences between these communities that are probably not going to be easily reconciled? Yeah, for those of us who are who are on team moral co-deliberation, it's, uh, these are dark days. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> I, so, so I guess I will say, I do think removing the punitive shaming aspect can help. I do think it can help. And and so it mm -hmm. depends on, it, you know, catch me on a bad day and I'm deeply pessimistic about the possibility that even that will make any kind of headway into this. Mm -hmm. Catch me on a good day and I will say um, there are, the the social media has a way of skewing what this looks like. And mm -hmm. there are, uh, fewer forgive the the crude example there are fewer QAnon people than we think mm -hmm. and there are more people who just feel lost in terms of what to believe and who to trust and and what to do and it's those lost people who are um you know not necessarily drawn to one side or the other but who uh who can be depending on you know the course of their lives and, and what sorts of things happen and depending on who they interact with 
Um, and uh, uh, that's a, th I think that's a thing to be mindful of for one, but it's also those, those are the people who I think don't benefit from, you know, things like the other kind of technological aspect of a lot of what's going on with things like social mm -hmm. media and Facebook and YouTube and the algorithm and the way that people sort of interact with, with online mm -hmm. content. Um, I think so. So on my good days, I think what you end up with are a lot of people who, uh, don't know what to do, don't know what to think, and do not know how to find the right kinds of resources to be able to think in complex ways about a very difficult topic. There's a lot of bad information, and it's really, really easy to get. Now, again, mm -hmm. those are my good days. <laughs> so, and right. even then, that's a, that's a real uphill battle. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I tend to think that that's, if, if that's where we are, then there's more hope for co-deliberation than than we realize. Mm -hmm. Although it's it's a little hard to see how that's going to take place on platforms like Twitter and Facebook. Yeah, right, for sure. Um, but okay, so let's talk about this disproportionality problem because I do think that's like a big piece of this. And you know, let me say initially, like I am sympathetic to there being a disproportionality problem with online. You know, it is often labeled as as cancel culture. That phrase has problematic uh, suggestions to it. And actually, let me say, I think let me, let me put the framing to you and see what you think about this. You know, it seems to me this is almost a kind of tragedy of the commons sort of problem, right? Where, and so this is getting towards the question of like, how should I as an individual act online when I want to criticize somebody, right? It seems to me that I could reasonably say it's fine for me to go and criticize an ex person online, but if that snowballs and everybody else does the same, what seems rational to them action of criticizing somebody online, then you get this disproportionality problem, right? Mm -hmm. That's that's a slightly different problem from like, if I as one individual just disproportionately obsess over another person. But it seems to me that that first one is the bigger concern a lot of the time, right? Mm -hmm. It's not one person hounding another person indefinitely mm -hmm. online. That's bad, right? But when we think of the like disproportionality problem here, I think it's the like, because of the connected connectivity of the internet, you can suddenly have a million people losing it at you online or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do, you, do you sort of agree that it's sort of a situation where everybody's kind of in their own way acting like a rational agent and that's sort of causing this sort of social collapse? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so, yes. So I would agree with that. I think there's actually, and this doesn't quite come out in the chapter, I think, well enough. I think there might be multiple, there are multiple kinds of disproportionality that might be at work. Mm -hmm. So, so there is that problem. There's the sort of tragedy of the commons problem. Then there is the problem of um, the sort of, uh, some account, let's say on Twitter with lots and lots of followers mm -hmm. and lots and lots of really loyal followers, uh, retweets something negative that someone said and, you know, dunks on that person. And then you have all of their followers, which are numerous, suddenly jumping in on this particular person, either, you know, just like for the sheer joy of blood sport or because they, you know, they see themselves as deeply allied with this account mm -hmm. that has, you know, all of this, this very large audience. So there's a, there's a disproportionality in terms of, it depends on, you know, you could have someone who's relatively famous kind of pluck another person out of obscurity and put them in a spotlight in a way mm -hmm. that it's hard to predict what then happens after that. Right. There's also, I think, a, a, an element of disproportionality that, and this is one that I've, I feel like I've seen more recently. It's almost as though um, when you start criticizing someone online, there is this uh, anything goes sort of attitude where the minute that someone has been labeled a wrongdoer or a wrong sayer or, or something or a wrong thinker, um, that person, now we can now say anything we want to that person. We can make fun of mm. their clothes. We can make fun mm -hmm. of their weight. We can do and, and anything, any kind of criticism becomes fair game, including incredibly cruel and deeply personal kinds of mm -hmm. criticism. Mm -hmm. And so that, it seems to me, again, again, I think in real life, we don't behave that way always. Like Just because someone has said something offensive, we don't then you know, start pummeling them with fists just because they've started. So there's a, there's a disproportionality about the kinds of criticism that it seems that people mm -hmm. are comfortable engaging in online. Mm -hmm. So I think all of those things are sort of species of a kind of disproportionality worry. 
Yeah, I think that's right. Um, so let's let's break them down a little bit further here, right? So let's talk first about the like the disproportionality of the large platform, right, to the small platform. Um, so it seems like it follows from what you're saying that the larger someone's online platform gets, the higher a moral obligation they have not to punch down, like not to dunk down, as it were, right? Mm -hmm. Do you think that like? if you're it's okay to dunk as long as you continue to dunk upwards or do you feel like you know ultimately yeah. we shouldn't be dunking in any direction and right you know like like, like my broad yeah. question to you really is how how should i right as someone with seven thousand <laughs> twitter followers when am i allowed to stop when do i have to stop dunking do i have to right. stop at like ten thousand, <laughs> or like can i keep dunking but as long as it's on people with a hundred more hundred thousand right, more right right like, right that's a great yeah. question yeah so yeah so i have to i have to admit and i know this is not a popular review but i am just not pro punching i'm not pro punching up i'm not pro punching down like we are not punching stop punching people this is um there's a weird sort of People have gotten themselves into this idea that like it's totally fine for you to be a horrifically cruel jerk as long as the person you're being a jerk to is somebody like Jeff Bezos. Okay, but and look, I'm right, like, right. look, like, okay, look. Yeah. At a certain point, I, I get the, I get what's going on here, but, but also let's let's kind of like reel it back in and realize that look, Jeff Bezos is a moral agent too. I'm not like sympathetic to any of the things that he does. There's lots of criticisms that I could make of him as, you know, how he runs his company and a whole bunch of other things, but he's also a person. And so we've mm -hmm. got to start th thinking in a little bit more sophisticated ways about making sure that we're, you know, we can be critical of him and all sorts of things that he does without then sort of saying, well, all, you know, throw off the gloves because he's rich. Like, time out like that's not i'm actually not yeah. okay with that <laughs> and like i didn't i didn't when i say dunking i don't have in mind the most vicious horrible things that right, people right, are doing right, online yeah. right Fair i have enough, a much yeah. more sort of um you know fun mm -hmm. uh, you know but like i do think there's a real issue here because like i don't want people who have larger platforms to feel like they can't criticize other people sure but there's a reality where mm -hmm. Even if they criticize them in in, a, in the correct mm -hmm. way, right. merely by having a large audience, they are opening that person up right. in this kind of way. So, right. is there anything that we can do on that side of mm -hmm. things to avoid this problem, or do we need to be addressing it at a different sort of level, like a systemic level, or something like that? Yeah, that's a really great question. Yeah, so so I don't necessarily want to say. Well, no. Okay, maybe I do want to say this. So here, let me make this comparison, and you tell me what you think. So, sure. so I think of this. I think of this sometimes in the context of being a teacher, right? So, so look, mm -hmm. would that I had brainwashing power over my students. I don't. Sure, sure. No, I'm kidding. I don't actually want brain brainwashing power over my students. But, <laughs> but I do. I am mindful of the idea that you know they are when I'm presenting a philosopher's ideas or something like that, right? Look, it's, this is my interpretation and, and there are others and I need to be, I do think that I need to be a little bit careful about presenting, making sure I'm presenting sort of multiple ways of reading someone because I don't want to give the impression that my way of reading this person is the right way. So I'm mindful of the idea that I, I have a certain, I can present things in an authoritative way that can give mm -hmm. a false view because mm -hmm. of my role as a teacher. And so I'm, I'm mindful to try to not do that. Mm -hmm. I wonder if there's a parallel kind of thing happening mm -hmm. when you have large followers, you know, follower counts on Twitter, that maybe you do need to sort of be mindful of the fact that, you know, are you as a person who has a lot of followers sort of inviting and depending on how rabid your followers are, are you inviting mm -hmm. um, your followers to kind of, you know, jump on somebody if you'd start dunking on them? And maybe as a person who has a lot of followers, you need to be I'm not saying you can't criticize people, but right. maybe you do need to be mindful about how you present your criticism and maybe you need to be mindful of that for this particular reason in a way that someone else with a smaller you know follower count doesn't necessarily need to be mindful now that's not mm -hmm. to say that the person with the smaller following doesn't also need to be mindful because you know mm -hmm. when it comes there's a radical kind of you know the viral tweet can right, happen right. to anybody and right. so you know we we all have to be on guard for the fact that that could put you know you could be the next viral tweet so i do think we need to be a little bit more self-aware about how mm -hmm. we present things for that for that reason because we do have this the ability to reach a lot of people 
Yeah, and I'm extremely sympathetic to this sort of how you present your dunks, right? How you critique other people sort of matters a lot. And I, I honestly, in my experience, it seems to me, you know, how a person carries themselves as they build their platform impacts who follows them and how they behave. Like people you know, recognize this is your particular approach. And so if you're sharing something, I'm not going to like, you know, come and start a bunch of shit on your like thing in a way that you wouldn't find appropriate. And so like, you know, and you, you definitely, you definitely see this on Twitter where like certain accounts that criticize other people, you're not worried that if they retweet you, you're going to just get swarmed by a bunch of jerks. Like you're like really terrible people, right? Whereas other folks really do sort of cultivate a kind of following that knows that the, the name of the game is go harass this person and be as annoying as possible, right? Absolutely. So yeah, I do. I think, and I think it's unfortunate that we have downplayed this, that we take, you know, we more, more as a culture of taking the approach that like, I can't control my followers. They're going to do what they're going to do kind of thing. Right. Um, so yeah, I am sympathetic to that on the like personal responsibility mm-hmm. side. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the other side, the sort of mechanisms that we might implement that could allow individuals to continue to criticize other individuals while reducing some of the negative impacts here. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, for example, um, I think you mentioned maybe in the paper or in, in talking about this that like, you know, that we have these things where if something presents, uh, someone presents an article and you want to share it, it'll like ask you, do you, you know, Clippy shows up and says, do you want to <laughs> share this misinformation without reading it first? Right. right? Um, you know, could we have, do you think it would be reasonable or valuable to have something like a dog pile warning or something where like, mm-hmm. as you go to retweet something, you're like, Twitter says, Hey, lots of people are retweeting this thing recently. Are you sure you want to contribute to this dog mm-hmm. pile? Mm-hmm. Do you feel like that would be something worth trying? Do you think it would have any impact? Yeah, that's a great question. So, so on one, on the one hand that, uh, there's a kind of empirical question about how successful those things are. So I'd actually really like mm-hmm. to get the info. I'd like to get the data on the, would you like to read this article first? Uh, mm-hmm. Clippy, because that would be, um, I'd like to know whether or not that's actually working. Um, mm-hmm. Here's my suspicion because I'm, I'm pessimistic sometimes about people. Uh, my suspicion is that uh, a lot of people get that message and go, screw you. I do what I want. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and I'm a little bit I'm a little bit concerned. Yeah, I blow that, back like, effect. Yeah, right. I'm a little concerned that you know spite is a powerful motivator, and I I am uh-huh. a little concerned that there's that those little warnings uh come across as kind of self righteous on mm-hmm. Twitter's part, and that and that people don't respond well to those things. So I'm slightly mm-hmm. concerned that there would be some of that happening. That said. Uh, I think there is a really interesting question to ask about the the technological side of this. Are there things we can do with the actual technology? And th- there's a deeper yeah. question here too, not just not just what kinds of interventions can we make to mm-hmm. to sort of get people to have some more self awareness, but also um, there's a question. Th- I think this speaks to a deeper question about how the technology itself is shaping the Mm -hmm. kinds of conversations that we're having and that it seems to me is a it's a deep question that's a very interesting question that's something that i wish more philosophers were working on especially moral philosophers i think there's Mm -hmm. um you know the the sort of data and ai kind of ethics is is really blowing up nowadays and that's good but i'd like to see more questions about you know the sort of intersection of our interactions with this technology and kind of moral psychology and how this is because mm-hmm. the thing is like this it, it we're having a lot of i talk to my students about this sometimes and you know the places where they have public debates is in the comment section on facebook posts and on twitter and things like that and i start to ask myself whether or not that is a terrible idea because honestly it seems like a terrible idea that this is mainly where our conversations are happening i don't Mm -hmm. think that's good (laughs) um but it's but if that's right if that's the reality that we're facing we need to be prepared and we need to be thinking more about this about how these kinds of platforms are shaping the way we talk to each other Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm I'm very sympathetic, and I have 10 million questions in this area of, of like <laughs> AI ethics. So, like, first of all, I agree with you totally that like there's a, a philosophical, like a larger scale debate that needs to be had that isn't just like do we take away the like button, mm-hmm. right? Which is that like the big problem here, it seems to me, is 
the connectivity, the interconnectivity itself is the problem. And so technical solutions are going to be solutions that buy, you know, that muck up that connectivity in some kind of way, mm-hmm. right? So first of all, you're immediately then running right into the monetary problem, right? Where right. the inter- interconnectivity is the product, right? right? And right. you're telling them you have to make your product worse so that it stops taking advantage of human nature as effectively as it is. So that's mm-hmm. that's like one challenge right there. And then the other challenge is these are going to be paternalistic interventions, exactly. right? You're going to be using technology to do what, it, what you think is best for human beings because as you say, they're going to tell you, screw you, I do what I want otherwise, mm-hmm. right? So those are like two main challenges. Um, so like looking at some of the specific examples, and I, I'd love you to just talk about like, do we think that these are good balances given those challenges. So like, instead of just having a warning, you know, there's a dog pile happening, do you want to talk about this? What about using algorithms to like counteract the viral effect, right? Mm. If an algorithm notices that a particular tweet from a small account is getting thousands of retweets or hundreds of retweets Mm -hmm. that and like it notices that there's negative content or something in those retweets do you stop showing that thing to other people right do you you know shadow it in a sense do you feel like that would be something that you would consider an ethically acceptable balance of sort of paternalism for the sake of sort of shutting down some of these things before they get out of control yeah that's a really that's a really great question i i am i have to be honest i am it's it's the paternalism worry yes but i want to rephrase that in a in a different mm-hmm. way it or or i want to just like unpack that a little bit there um these platforms i think about for example the way that google has just infiltrated all every aspect of our lives right so like now my school email is gmail and the kinds of you know everybody uses google search engine for literally everything so if from my political philosophy side i have some real serious questions about the status of technology companies now in mm-hmm. our political landscape And so I start to get concerned that if they are the primary place where public conversations are happening, I don't Mm -hmm. know how comfortable I feel with them making the decisions about what Mm -hmm. sorts of things get shown and what sorts of things don't and what kinds of tweets. And, and this, and I have the same issue with them um, trying to control hate speech and that kind of stuff. Not, not Mm -hmm. only because, and this is a big deal, not only because they do it very poorly, um, not, which is not to say like, yes, at some point it's poorly because they don't do it at all. But then at some point they try to use, you know, algorithmic, uh, ways of you know flagging things that can't tell the difference between someone mm-hmm. showing you know a swastika because they're doing a, a PowerPoint lecture on a on the history of World War II versus someone showing a, a swastika because they're you know promoting pro Nazi content. Right. So you know th- there's a algorithms can't tell the difference between those two things. Right. This is a big and, problem in debunking world actually. Right. Debunking right. articles often get taken down for this reason. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so so not only do I not trust the the methods that they have to be able to mm-hmm. do that i am not totally comfortable as much as i hate all that all of that you know awful stuff is out there and i don't want it to be there i don't trust that decision to youtube and i don't trust that decision to twitter and i don't feel good mm-hmm. about them being the ones to make the call so mm-hmm. so as much as I'm concerned about pylons and as much as I'm concerned about, you know, the the really bad disproportionate effects of online shaming, I get nervous about putting those decisions in the hands of the overlords. Yeah, I mean, I'm sympathetic. I don't want that to be the solution. I think I feel at the present moment there is no other lever available and i want and i feel like we need to pull the lever right like i don't i don't love pulling the lever right Mm -hmm. but i think so so another example of like something they can be doing on this front is the like banning of persistent violators right Right. if you're a big account who you know like a glinner or something who's just Mm -hmm. constantly causing horrible dog piles on people right right akin to banning alex jones for spreading persistent misinformation right right right. to me that seems like the right thing ultimately mm-hmm. i understand the risk of abuse um i think that it should be used it probably needs to be used more sparingly than i would like it to be in order to avoid the risk of abuse right but i mm-hmm. think for very clear-cut very significant cases it does seem like 
I want these these companies to have this option because no one else has the power and the right. amount of damage being done is very significant. Right. Um, right. I'm curious what you think about sort of that sort of final compromise mm-hmm. position. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm really sympathetic to that. And and I, in part, I think I'm sympathetic to it because of the the sort of habitual offender, right? If we're talking about an account that has done this over and over again and has, you know, seemingly built its brand on being, you know, a, an online shaming warehouse, then mm-hmm. it, it seems to me we, we might need to think a little bit harder about whether or not that person, you know, for the same reason that, you know, look, you just don't get you don't get to be a habitual misinformation spreader. At a certain point, you you can, you know, we give people grace and we let people have some leeway, but it but if it's over and over and over again, then I, I I'm more sympathetic to the idea that, you know, habitual offenders kind of lose their <laughs> not lose their rights, but like lose their, you know, uh use, mm-hmm. lose the claim to to being allowed to be on the platform in the same way that everybody else is. Mm-hmm. Great. So I think we've we've sort of pretty well covered. Unless there's any other sort of technical solutions that you're sympathetic to, I know you also talk a little bit about some non-technical solutions. Um, so maybe we can get into yeah. those a little bit. Um, so for example, you mentioned sort of essentially shaming without naming, mm-hmm. right? This idea of like, uh, so like me, like mean tweets. I think was an example yeah. that you've talked about, right? Yeah. Where we, um you know, we show the bad content, but not necessarily in a way that tries to um, produce a dog pile. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I'm, I'm a little curious, first of all, do you worry that that still produces blowback from individuals who identify with the thing being made fun of, mm. right? And like, so, so for example, if we're shaming conspiracism, misinformation or something like that, people who maybe identify with that particular conspiracy theory mm-hmm. could feel like they're being shamed in a harmful kind of way. Mm-hmm. And then also, I guess I worry in, in our current data information environment, it seems very easy to sort of unmask people, right? Yeah. And so, like, the, the nameless shaming could quickly turn into mm-hmm. having their name released once enough people have their eyes on the thing. Yes, very much so. Yeah, so, so yeah, so initially I, I do think of those things as, as good compromises, in part because it seems to me, and so, you know, my example of this is, you know, women who post uh, misogynistic comments that they get on dating websites, for example, and they block out mm-hmm. the names and the pictures of the people who are on it. Um, initially, I sort of thought, you know, that that's it seemed to me like that was a good compromise because it, one of the arguments in favor of shaming is that it makes public the kinds of abuse that women on will face online, for example. And mm-hmm. um, uh, yeah, and as we know, you know, a lot of the reasons that that continues is because there's a kind of anonymity and people don't know that it's happening. So so I thought, OK, you know, if, if what we're concerned about is is making it public that these sorts of things happen and we want to have a, a substantive mm-hmm. conversation about that, then one way to do that is to say, look, here's an example of the kind of thing that people will say to me. And what mm-hmm. I'm calling attention to is not the person who said it, but the kind of thing that it is, the kind of comment that it is. Um, Mm -hmm. however, I am very concerned about this detective, this junior sleuthing that the internet (laughs) seems to love where they just, anybody will do this. And it is so dangerous because, and I, I, like, you can't count the number of articles that you've read where, you know, junior detectives online have thought that they've found ex perpetrator of something. And it turns out to just be a guy who happens to have the same name or happens to look like the person or the photo was kind of similar. And so this person gets called out as, you know, whatever Joe Schmo. And it turns out, no, actually that's this other guy who just happens to look like Joe Schmo, because we're very mm-hmm. overconfident in our ability to be detectives, apparently. And so I am quite concerned that, you know, the minute we start doing screenshots and all that kind of stuff, the sort of vigilantes on Twitter will take it upon themselves to try to out the identity of this person. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so I'm starting to feel even less sanguine about about those kinds of interventions, because it seems to me like we we can really cannot handle this in mm-hmm. a way that it seems to me we should be able to like because again the point it seems to me is to call attention to the behavior not the person but but mm-hmm. the internet seems to you know to love to take down the actual human and not and not the behavior they're not focusing on the behavior they're focusing on the person 
Yeah, so I'm sympathetic, but let me let me play uh, Antifa advocate here for a second, right? <laughs> so if I feel, you know, if I, you got people at the Unite the Right rally or mm -hmm. something like that, right, and they're not going to face any consequences, right, they're going to continue their pro-Nazi behavior, their thinking or something like that, unless I identify them, you know, get a hold of their employer and get them fired or something like that. And so I, I bring sufficient consequences to bear on them that like some of them might mm -hmm. sort of realize maybe I shouldn't be an out and out Nazi if I want to have a job and part of of society. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and especially if you're coming from a perspective where you feel like the system is is like not going to provide any other kind of form of corrective mm -hmm. for their behavior. Mm -hmm. um, you know, are you at all kind of sort of sympathetic to that consequentialist reasoning? Or do you just mm. think that, like, we should just be staying away from all of that stuff entirely? Yeah, I'm no, I'm not sympathetic. I I think we should just be staying away from that mm. stuff entirely. And in, and in uh -huh. part because, um, and this is not like, let me make it clear, I am not comparing, I don't want to compare, you know, Nazi mm -hmm. political views to any other set of political views. What I what I do want to point out, though, is that those kinds of tactics, right, the tactic of I saw you at a protest and now I can contact your job can be levied against mm -hmm. anyone. Right. Mm -hmm. So so you just have to get enough angry people together. And that kind of that kind of tactic could be used at, you know, a pro-science march or any kind of march, right? Any kind of mm -hmm. you know, public event. And so I, I just get I'm, I'm too doubtful of of the tactic itself because mm -hmm. I don't think I don't think anybody should be subject to that kind of sort of vigilantism. Mm -hmm. I just don't I'm not sympathetic to that at all. And it's, this is probably a good example of where it comes back to your other concern about creating safe spaces for marginalized individuals, where that's a kind of tactic that could be really effective against people who are in marginalized uh, positions. And mm -hmm. so you don't want to normalize that kind of um, behavior online um, on that kind of front and like continuing to sort of think about sort of softer behaviors and things. Right. So creating safe communities online, in, in my experience, right could involve a little bit of what feels like like mild shaming right mm -hmm. so if i run you know the philosophers in space facebook group and a new person shows up and they make a joke that isn't really our our brand right isn't you know like is is punching down in the way that they aren't just very they're not very thoughtful about it or something mm -hmm. like that right a little bit of like hey that's not really how we do things around here kind of approach i think can be effective and like you know, and, and if they persist, then you just, you know, would remove them mm -hmm. from the group, right? I guess, do you still feel like that kind of um, sort of soft, soft shaming and content moderation is still a, sort of a valuable part of the solution? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do. I mean, it's so I, I don't want to get and, and I think I, I think it's easy to read me this way when I when I talk about this kind of stuff. So I don't I don't want to talk, I don't want to get the vision that, you know, moral co-deliberation is this kind of, you know, we're all sitting around the campfire, holding hands mm -hmm. and, you know, and singing Kumbaya. Like that's not that I don't want to, I don't want to give that image of it as, as rosy and always, you know, it's going to be painful. It's going to be difficult. It's going to sometimes be fraught. Um, so I'm, I'm okay with the idea that sometimes, especially, especially involving maybe a little bit of humor, not necessarily a cruel kind of humor, but mm -hmm. a little bit of, you know, levity, um, people still need to know, you know, they need to be aware and, and people are not always, you know, hip to the kinds of, uh, you know, community norms and that kind of stuff that people have. And so it's, it, you got to communicate that somehow. And mm -hmm. so I don't, I, again, I don't think we can't, we can't do everything with kid gloves and we can't try to protect people's feelings all the time, but we can let people know things in a way that allows them an ability to, to shift, allows them an ability to adjust and that kind of punitive behavior, you know, especially punitive behavior right off the bat is just not mm -hmm. something that allows for that. Mm -hmm. So, okay. I think we're getting, we're getting close to the end here. Are there any other like changes to behavior for, you know, like individuals that, you know, or, or tactics that are not technically based that you want to sort of throw out here as other things that you think might be part of the solution? That's a great question. So I, um, 
this is something that I'm thinking a lot more about recently about, you know, uh, there's lots of different interventions and there's lots of different solutions when we're thinking about how to you know, improve online and communication and online environment for people. Um, but at a certain point, not it, it doesn't all distill down to individual behavior, but at a certain point, individual behavior has to be a part of it, right? And so mm -hmm. we, I, I think it's it's perfectly reasonable to think that if you're if you have certain expectations for how a moral agent should behave in the world, then it's perfectly reasonable to have expectations that that you should behave better online, and that at some mm -hmm. point it's up to you, and you've got to think about these things, and you've got to be more aware of it. Um, mm -hmm. The the place where I where this is really becoming clear to me is the the sort of all autopilot. So, so if I had, a, you know, one piece of advice that seems to me like relatively solid at this point, we, we're very autopilot online. We're very autopilot mm -hmm. on Twitter. We're autopilot on Facebook. And we've got to break the habit of being autopilot. The, the place mm -hmm. where I see this the most is just the sharing of, uh, you know, a screenshot or something without any investigation into whether or not that information is accurate, what the mm -hmm, source is, mm -hmm. where it came from, just no double checking. People just share, retweet, done, no double checking. And so even people who have whatever the best of motives, I saw recently mm -hmm. this this um, this account that uh, retweeted some quote that that everyone has started to attribute attribute to James Baldwin, the okay, writer, yeah. and it is yeah. not in fact a James Baldwin quote. And yet sure. it's gotten so bad that people, uh, p professors have put it on their syllabi as a James oh, Baldwin no. quote, except that it's not his. <laughs> and so they tweeted it. It was very clear, like has said multiple times, this is not a James Baldwin quote, but it doesn't matter. You do a Google search and that quote is all over the place and mm -hmm. on images of him and everything. And so, you know, here's a, a, a delightful, people have the best of motives and yet at the same time, we've got wild misinformation out there. So we've got to figure mm -hmm. out a way to get ourselves off of autopilot when okay. we're online. And how do we do that? I wish I had an answer. But, you know, if, <laughs> if, if there's something we need to do better, we need to, at, part of it is just realizing, you, look, I'm a, if I'm a moral agent when I'm at the grocery store, I'm a moral agent when I'm on Twitter too. Mm -hmm. Right, it is real life. Yeah. Right. Which is why you have to do mindful, properly researched dunking, right? you got to really <laughs> be conscious dunking. and present in the moment when you are dunking on someone. No right? autopilot dunking. <laughs> I'm, I'm fully on board with this. I think, I think Zen dunking is, is the new thing. Um, well, let me, let me wrap up here. Are there any other resources that have pretty heavily influenced your thinking about online shaming that you would recommend to folks for who want to dive a little further into this? Oh, I so no, I can't think of any that are about online shaming specifically. But uh, mm -hmm. if you're looking for a book that tries to that's in this sort of family of um, uh, trying to figure out how to be more virtuous online, Shannon Valor, the philosopher Shannon Valor has a book called Oh, shoot, I'm gonna get it wrong. I'm going to get the title wrong. Just look her up. It hurts. It's her book on sort of virtue in, in uh, technology. And What's she uses again? a Shannon Valor, V-A-L-L-O-R. Uh, she's got, she has one of the like most comprehensive discussions about what it would look like to take a, a, a moral framework. So she takes Buddhism. Is this technology um, and the virtues? Yes, it is technology and the virtues. That's exactly right. Yeah. So what mm -hmm. do you, how do you apply sort of virtue ethics to our use of technology? That's a great, cool, cool, cool. yeah, for yeah. me, that's one of the, you know, staples of, of, uh, of thinking about this topic. Yeah, we're very pro-virtue ethics around yeah. here, so I'm sympathetic to that. All right. Well, this is this is great. Thank you so much. Unfortunately, now I have to torture you. All right. I'm ready. So, this is the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. And you have been through, you survived round I one did. of the enlightening round already. I mean, so barely. You... I don't know if I really survived it. <laughs> Fair enough, right? Whoever came out the other side, a shell of a person. Right. right. Um, so this is enlightening round to trolley boogaloo oh no trolleys yep it's trolley time so i'm gonna give you a list of scenarios oh, and no. here's how this is gonna work you're gonna tell me is the action permissible morally permissible or not permissible okay that is the okay. criteria we are setting that is the, not the same as would you do the thing it's just permissible right? okay would it is it ethically or morally permissible or not okay all right okay are you ready yes Okay, so is it ethically permissible to pull the lever to save five people by killing one? No. 
Okay. What about to save one billion people by killing one? Oh, no. I'm a, con- <laughs> I'm a Kantian! I can't what say about to s- to any of them. What about save yourself by killing one? Oh, shoot. God, this is self-defense. <laughs> oh, God. Uh. Yes. Okay. What about to save yourself by killing one million? Oh, no. Definitely not. No. Okay, great. Uh, save. What about saving five by pushing the person responsible for them being on the tracks? No, because that's vigilante. No. <laughs> okay. What about killing your favorite artist to save their complete body of work? Oh, God. No. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Um, what about you, you You save five people, but you personally have to go through a teleporter to get to the lever? Oh, I don't know. Why, why would the teleporter make a difference? It's Wait, you save. So you say yourself. it again. You save five people by going through a teleporter. Go... Yes. I sure. Okay, I'll go through the you're, teleporter. You're again, yeah. Okay. <laughs> you don't. So people think they're killing machines. You know, it's a thing. Oh, okay. Um, uh, what about saving a ten-year-old by killing an eighty-year-old? No, you can't do that. No. Okay. Uh, save a world historic person by killing a non-world historic person. No. Mm-mm. Okay. What about saving your favorite non-human animal? By killing one human. No. What about saving an entire species of non-human animals by killing one human? No. Okay. What about saving a sentient AI, fully rational AI, by killing one human? Oh, like, definitely not. No. Okay. All right. You survived Screw my... the AI. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Substrate chauvinist all the way. <laughs> I appreciate that about you. How do you feel? You survived the oh, trolley Oh, I feel tainted morally. That's terrible. Aaron, why do you do this to people? <laughs> because my audience loves it. And, you know, <laughs> public dunking is, is the currency of our time. So here we are. And, you know, I'm still workshopping this one. So for folks who want to suggest other ones that might fit into this oh, format, would it have been, would, it, would you have given totally different answers if it had been like letting one die or something? I, mean, I assume you probably no, would. Probably no. not. No, no? Okay. no. Oh, God. This is so much worse than the other one. I, it's it's simultaneously worse, but it's also harder to design, right? The other one is yeah. a little more straightforward. This one's got like permissible yeah. versus obligatory, all these sorts right, of things. But right, right. I appreciate you um, in help indulging me in my <laughs> continued test driving of my recreational torture all right. machine. All right, you're welcome. <laughs> all right, Krista, do you want to let folks know where they can find you again? Find your work, uh, Twitter, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, I'm on Twitter at KK Thomason. Although Twitter is a is a shit show, so please don't follow me. Um, uh, my work is on uh, Phil Papers. If you're if you have access to that, if you look me up on the Swarthmore Philosophy website, um, you can find my personal website is on there. Uh, yeah, that's those are the places to to find me. Okay, great. Well, thanks so much. I appreciate you coming on. And let me know next time you've got something else out and we'll figure out some other way to torture you. Absolutely. Sounds good. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks again to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Thanks to our top-tier patrons, our Archon-level patrons, Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman, Chad T, Create Voting Districts in Covina, California, Fight for Democracy and End the Theocracy, Fix the Vote, Dude, I'd like to thank Aaron for being a friend in my head, and Lawrence Shielding, and all the thanks to our Archduke-level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Little Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, Please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space. And while you're at it, check out our wonderful editor's show, Film Live Musicals. Leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can also follow me on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus ETV reading group content. Most of all, No matter how much shame you feel, you are the void, and the void is you.